welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Adel Romero, Assistant Professor at Northern Illinois University College of Law, and today I'm joined by Jenna Leva, Associate Professor at Seton Hall, to talk about her article, Prescription Drug Policing, the Right to Health Information Privacy Pre- and Post-Carpenter, which is forthcoming in the Duke Law Journal. Thanks for joining me, Jen. Thanks for having me. Great. So let's talk about this sort of concept about the prescription drug overdose epidemic. Is this misleading or not? This prescription drug overdose epidemic. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's really misleading if you look at the epidemiological data. And that was sort of the first point that I wanted to make in the paper, which is that the media concept, the main primary narrative is that people are dying because of prescription opioids. Mm -hmm. Um, However, what the stats tell us is that people have shifted um, to illicit substances. And most folks who actually overdose um, have illicit substances in their system like fentanyl or heroin and often are polysubstance users. So we sort of really demonize prescription drugs um, when um, right now the problem with ODs is, is primarily in the illicit market. Okay. And, and to our listeners, if you hear a little bit of noise in the background, we are also joined by Eva, the Boston Terrier. So she, you might hear her running around occasionally. So there's a sort of narrative though that it seems like a lot of the media and politicians have bought into and everything the, the opioid epidemic arises from people getting accidentally addicted to things. This is spurred on by unscrupulous over-prescribing doctors. Um, so, you know, it, it seems like this is a really big problem if we don't even have the story right to, like, approach how to mitigate these opioid overdose deaths. I mean, this is so unrealistic. Like. Yeah, it's a huge problem, and you nailed it, because if you don't frame the problem right from the jump, you're not going to have, you're not going to come up with um, good solutions, right? Mm-hmm. So because this is this narrative was described this way and bought into, most of the interventions have been law enforcement driven, supply side interventions, like you said, stop the pill mills, let's stop the overprescribing, let's crack down on the supply. Yeah. And what that did actually was force people to substitute to go to the illicit market mm-hmm. because of dope sickness, if they, if they did have a problem, etc. So now they're taking a poison drug, in the illicit market that we have no control over when before they were taking an FDA approved substance, we at least knew what was in the pill and the dosage and we had all that regulated. So the problem with the narrative being wrong means that the solutions were poor and actually exacerbated the problem. Wow. Okay. So I want to talk about, you know, just the process of getting a prescription, what sort of data is collected and everything. So if I go to a doctor, I get a prescription, um, you know, maybe, you know, it's for something really sensitive. Maybe it's for HIV treatment. Maybe mm-hmm. it's like fertility drugs or mm-hmm. something like that. I I think I and most people listening expect some level of privacy when we're doing that. It's like, okay, this is my doctor. They're not supposed to be talking about this with anyone else. Um, but all this info about, you know, the substances that I'm using or things I'm getting prescribed, all this info is compiled somewhere, right? Yes. Can you tell us about these sort of databases that compile all this information? Yeah, so currently all states... Um, Missouri being the dead last in 2018, have some version of a prescription drug monitoring program. These things have actually been around for a long time, but only a few states had them, and they only collected very low-level information. So New York had one, has had one for quite some period of time, that they only like collected Schedule II drugs, and they didn't get very much information. Now, every state basically collects all scheduled drugs. You go in to your doctor, you get a prescription. The pharmacist or dispenser is required 
to enter all this information in the database, your name, your age, your address, your doctor's name, his DA control number, the dosage, whether you're on a refill, and the name of the drug. And as we know um, with personalized medicine today and many things, the name of the drug alone can often tell what someone's condition is. Some things, for example, if you're taking testosterone, yeah. uh, we know that you're getting hormone treatment. There's only a very few few reasons why you would be doing that. Exactly. So, yeah, it's a it's very, very personal information. It's stigmatizing conditions are easy to sort of spot in a system that collects up this information. And what's really disturbing is that most people don't realize it's being done because they aren't doing anything. It's the Bruce could be the dispenser at the point of dispensing at the retail pharmacy or the hospital that's entering this information kind of behind your back, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're, you don't sign a consent or anything into um, a database that's held uh, by some state agency. So you're talking just now about different schedules of drugs and everything and schedule two drugs. Um, you know, our, our audience comes from all over, you know, they have varying levels of understanding of the law and everything. So can you tell us about, you know, the difference between like schedule two drugs, schedule three drugs, and you know, what sort of, is it, are these databases limited to just the schedule two drugs or not? No, they're not. And that's one of the problems. So how the schedules, the Controlled Substance Act, right, created a scheduling system. It's mm-hmm. an act in 1970. It's actually 50 years old. Yeah. Up here. And um, schedule one drugs are actually illegal. So that's where you would find a whole panoply of drugs such as heroin, LSD, mm-hmm. marijuana, um, and Schedule 5 drugs are the drugs that are least controlled, right, under the five schedules. The, the two things that the DEA is supposed to evaluate when they decide where to put a controlled substance, Schedules 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, is efficacy, its medical effects, does it have a medical benefit, and then its potential for abuse. Mm-hmm. So they weigh these things. So Schedule 1 drugs, the DEA would say, and marijuana, remember, is a Schedule 1 drug federally, yeah. they would say it has no medical efficacy. It has no med- known medical benefit, and it has a high, high potential for abuse. Mm-hmm. So those are Schedule 1 drugs. Schedule 5 drugs have medical efficacy and very, very low potential for any kind of abuse or diversion. Okay. So, and, and, it's, and it, it's a spectrum from 1 to 5. Okay. Schedule 2 drugs is where you would find hydrocodone and Oxycontin, these kinds of A lot of those opioids, that, a lot you know, of those opioids. are problematic. Yeah. But like Tylenol with codeine is a, like a lower schedule drug, etc. So you can find some opioids in um, Schedule 3 as well. Um, but now the states are collecting like all the way down to Schedule 5 drugs. And like we said, the DEA says those drugs are have a medical benefit and very low. They scheduled them very low potential for any kind of misuse, diversion, or abuse. But yet these prescription drug monitoring programs are collecting all schedules. So, you know, they're collecting all this information that, you know, is arguably completely irrelevant to what the DEA is doing when it comes to fighting the supposed, you know, prescription drug crisis or something. Well, back to your point, if you were getting a, if you were taking an HIV drug, first of all, we would know what your diagnosis was and how does that have anything to do with, yeah. why are they not just collecting opioids or opioid, you know, um, analogs? Mm-hmm. Um, it's what happens when we start surveillance is it gets out of control really quickly. Yeah. And I think that people don't realize that we talk about the PDMPs. We think about, Oh, that's supposed to be helping with the prescription opioid problem. Well, that's not the problem, first mm-hmm. of all. It's exacerbating the problem. And second, why are you collecting up all of this personal data on me that literally has nothing to do with the opioids? Yeah. So what, what presumably is the point of collecting this information and putting it in the database? Like, what, you know, there must have been at least some sort of, like, non-law enforcement rationale that started all yeah. of this, right? Well, the rationale that folks told you in some of the states when they enacted them, you can actually see it right in the statutory language, mm-hmm. was doctors could look at the database 
and they had somebody in and see if it looked like the person was having a use disorder or was doctor shopping or whatever. Yeah. And they could intervene, medically intervene and sort of counsel them or try to get them on the right track. They could adjust the treatment schedule. That's how this was like sort of talked about. Pharmacists and doctors can be proactive and mm -hmm. get this information. But they, while they said that, at the time uh, that these PMPs became very popular, when the opioid crisis was blossoming, doctors weren't even mandated to check them in more than 50% of the jurisdictions. They yeah. only had to check them in very unusual situations. They didn't have to check them when they were prescribing a Schedule 5 drug, even though that was collected. Okay. But all that information was sitting there for what law enforcement sweeps. Yeah. And some of the states, like Ohio's PDMP, they're very honest that it's a law enforcement tool. So, so they don't even try to use the At least they complain about it. They're, I, I, as I say, I like it when people are honest and, you know, they, they, are, they're, they are honest that this is a law enforcement yeah, but, you know, a lot of these states where, you know, they, they try to enact these databases and say, oh, it's presumably for this sort of, you know, public health purpose, but then they don't even require the doctors to check. It, it seems like it's obvious that it's just for law enforcement. Right. Yeah. And law enforcement has easy access to it, and the federal government gave states grants. That's why everybody all yeah. of a sudden jumped on board to create them in the middle of the, you know, opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. um, so the federal government and federal law enforcement DOJ was really wanted this information collected out. And the DA admits, as you can read in the paper, they've admitted in open court that they uh, rely heavily on the databases. So how does the DEA initiate a process of getting some information out of these databases? And right. What do they do? So the DA has a eight, it's Section 876 of the Controlled Substance Act allows them to uh, subpoena um, information um, without probable cause. Um, without a warrant. Mm -hmm. um, and um, what's interesting about this, so they issue these subpoenas to the state PDMP holder. Sometimes that's the Board of Pharmacy, sometimes it's the health agency, sometimes it's the law enforcement agency, like the Attorney General's office. And um, they are usually very broad. I want two years worth of data on Mabel Romero. Just everything that's in there on you for two years, etc. And then they wow. rifle through it. But like I said, they don't have to make even an initial showing of like reasonable suspicion or anything like that. And what's interesting about that is they couldn't go to the pharmacy mm -hmm. and do that directly. They yeah. need the PDMP because the pharmacy requires to go to a pharmacy. Pharmacists obviously have some power. They have their own lobbying and in the Controlled Substance Act. You have to have an administrative warrant and notice. There's other requirements. Mm -hmm. So this really is an end run around even the, the very minimalist requirements yeah. of the Controlled Substance Act, which gives pharmacies some kind of protection. Okay. So, you know, there's no PC that's really being looked at here. There's there's no, you know, judicial oversight on this either, is there? It's just like a completely administrative subpoena. It is an administrative subpoena. The agent, the DEA agent signs it themselves. <laughs> the only time you get to court is, as you know, a couple states, Utah being one of them, um, said, no, we promised people that they we have a warrant requirement right in the statute. We're not going to give this to you. So what they have to do is then the DEA has to go to court exactly. and ask the judge to enforce the subpoena. And we'll talk about states where, you know, a warrant is required prior to accessing this data and what exactly DEA, DEA has tried to do in a little bit, too. Sure. Um, but, you know, when we're talking about Fourth Amendment protections, you know, these protections against unreasonable searches and seizures, I think there's sort of this pop cultural sort of understanding of what that means and everything. Um, that I think a lot of people are somehow, um, they've somehow bought into this idea that these Fourth Amendment protections only apply in criminal cases. Is that necessarily true? No. Okay. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not accurate. I mean, we have, you have even more protection outside the criminal. 
across the system. Yeah, um, right. Especially with your health data, right? Mm -hmm. So like this is one of the things that's so scandalous about this, as you can imagine, is all this data is being collected simply because people are seeking medical treatment. Yeah. And being held and it was you know, ar arguably in most states said for a public health purpose to deal with a public health crisis and you have the DA sweeping in on that. We, you know, on the civil side, you would never expect mm -hmm. um, someone to be able to get your um, health information for a public health purpose without um, a warrant exactly. and notice, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely right. Okay, so when we're talking about like the, the Fourth Amendment yeah. in particular and those protections, there's been sort of this traditional understanding that the Fourth Amendment and your rights under that are very property-centric, right? Yes. It's like, okay, it's like, it protects this plot of land or it protects whatever's in your purse or something like that. But the, that sort of, that, that that understanding has changed recently, right? Yeah, it has. And one of the interesting things about it is it, uh, Neil Gorgeous's, Justice Gorgeous's assent, uh, in, which I call a concurrence, and mm -hmm. Carpenter actually goes back to this old notion of, like, he lays out that idea. Yeah. But since Katz was decided, right, Justice Harlan, um, his decision in Katz, we've broaden our view of what gets privacy privacy and that's whenever you have a reasonable expectation of privacy or something that it's not as property centric anymore and there there is a concerted element on the court that doesn't like that yeah and wants cats to see cats overruled but it is the law so can you tell us a little bit more about that cats case for folks who haven't read it oh anybody who hasn't read the cats says okay so you basically what justice harlan said in cats is instead of using this very property centric notion of like I own the land mm -hmm. I own the car I own my home um if you have a reasonable expectation of privacy and um something it should be protected by the fourth amendment as well right so we do the cat's test um when you think about old school fourth amendment cases or the where the fourth amendment came from this is actually historically um on track because it was about your papers yeah like your personal thoughts your personal effects your personal stuff, effects right? right so this has a long lineage this wasn't sort of some novel concept in the 1960s yeah. it actually is a long lineage in sort of fourth amendment tradition yeah so now we actually have to apply the reasonable expectation of privacy test not do you own the property and that becomes very important in these kinds of cases because who owns your health data yeah 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 so <laughs> you know it's like who owns this who owns this conversation like when we're talking about cats so this was a wiretap case right? it's a wiretap case. yeah so it's like it's interesting to see how the fourth amendment and sort of understandings of it change a little bit with once different technologies are introduced right you know? so you know what you see is yeah under cats you know the fourth amendment you know, it protects people and not places, right? Right. Um, and I think, do you see that extended a little bit in Smith versus Maryland too or something? Well, Smith to me undermines those cases, the third party doctrine cases really undermine this entire concept and it seems to be going back to the property okay. concept, right? So you, what happened after Katz is we have the Smith case and you have this third party doctrine carved out and that's mm -hmm. really ultimately the problem. For me. So what do we mean by that? So the notion now is that you had something and you give it to a third party, you've abandoned your rights in it. And a lot of people think about these famous Fourth Amendment cases, like, I left my garbage yeah. outside my house. Now the police can rifle through it because mm -hmm. I've abandoned that property. I've yeah. given it away. I no longer have, how can I have a reasonable expectation of privacy? It's something I set out on the curb. Yeah. Whether you like that or not, that's very different than I went to my doctor, which is happening here. I had an honest, confidential, comp understatement. Well, those are confidential conversations mm -hmm. with your treatment your, your treatment provider and behind my back unbeknownst to me the pharmacist is giving yeah. my information up to the state yes 
And the argument that the VA's made here is that once the pharmacist puts that information into the state database and that state custodian has it, you've abandoned your prescribing data, your health data, and you can't even argue the VA shouldn't be allowed to get it without a warrant because just like the trash on the curb, you've given it away. But I've actually abandoned my trash. I assume that someone might actually rifle through it if they really want. I'm still using my health information. Absolutely. And where where did you consent yeah. or do something affirmative, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, you didn't even do something passive because most people, they don't have to tell you. You don't sign like some kind of consent waiver or anything. There's like no form or anything? Like nothing. That? Not like It's not like a HIPAA situation. Wow. Okay. So I want to talk about some of the conflicts between the DEA and, you know, Oregon and Utah in particular. Yeah. So the DEA back in 2012 served a whole lot of administrative subpoenas looking for um, some of this private health information Um, in Oregon. um, What exactly did Oregon do in response to that? Right. So Oregon statute um, had an explicit warrant requirement and said, well, one of the concerns in the legislative history when Oregon was passing its PDMP was doctors were like, this is for public health. We don't want law enforcement. This would be a law, primary law enforcement tool. And if law enforcement wants information, they have to go through. They have to follow the Fourth Amendment. They have to follow the Oregon Constitution and the federal Constitution, mm-hmm. and they have to get a warrant. So when the subpoenas came in, Oregon stood up to them and said, no, we have a warrant requirement. We're going to have to, you're forcing us to violate state law. We're not, we're not doing it. We're not yeah. applying. You go to court and prove that you have probable cause to get a warrant. And the DA, of course, went to court, federal district court, uh, to enforce the warrant. And Oregon fought back. So that was the, that's the genesis of this first time you see a state challenging the federal government and uh, on uh, PDMP access. Now, the DA argued, made many arguments. They made the third-party doctrine argument yeah. that you and I just talked about and said, these folks, these Jane Doe's and the lawsuit ACLU brought the suit with a bunch of named plaintiffs who were concerned. You don't have standing because your information is in the state PDP. The other argument that they made that they, they love to make is that the Controlled Substance Act trumps any kind of state requirement. So some sort of like preemption sort it of was argument? literally a, a absolute conflict preemption argument that uh, they made. So they said, so 876 of the Controlled Substance Act, which allows us to do these administrative warrants, yeah. that trumps your state warrant requirement. Um, so those were the arguments they made. And even if you don't like that, third-party doctrine. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So was it successful in Oregon then? It was not. Actually, uh-huh. they, the DA actually lost, and it's a wonderful opinion. I commend it to anybody to read. Actually, lost at the at the district court level in Oregon, but of course appealed to um, the Ninth Circuit. And when they went to the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit actually also seemed very sympathetic to the ACLU and the, the uh, Doe plaintiffs' arguments, but um, decided a new a Supreme Court case, a crazy Supreme Court case on standing had recently been issued, mm-hmm. and they lost in procedural grounds that the ACLU didn't actually have standing. And the plaintiffs didn't have standing because they had their particular information mm. had not been um, swept. Interesting, yeah. Because obviously the subpoenas hadn't been issued. Exactly. So you get in this big catch-22 there on a procedural. Yeah, rather than like anything on the merits yeah. there. So we don't really have a merits decision from a circuit court. Interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about Utah okay. in particular. No, so no. what sort of information <laughs> does the Utah PDMP? Utah and Oregon collected very similar information, all schedules. Okay. Like I said, I told you schedules one through five, and also some drugs that aren't even scheduled that you know have a danger of misuse. Um, Oregon or Utah, to its credit, also though very strong warrant requirement mm-hmm. and written in the statute, very public health purpose. Okay. Um, so they actually look quite similar, um, and so Utah really had a serious uh, uh, has had a serious really suffered an opioid crisis. Yeah. And, um, yeah. They, they took this public health. 
um, notion very seriously. Same exact process here. Mm -hmm. The Utah PDMP said no to the DA when they were doing their sweeps. And of course, uh, the DA said, I'll see you in Utah Federal District Court. And um, this time, um, the judge basically adopted every single argument that the DA made. So DA was successful. And the ACLU decided not to appeal because that time that yeah. we gone to the 10th Circuit. Mm -hmm. We don't have a circuit court decision. You, the decision was made. I'm not, you know, I don't run the ACLU, but it seemed like the decision was made that the 10th, we didn't want the 10th Circuit no. to be the first circuit. I would not want to do that either. Right. Yeah, you you are very sense. familiar with the 10th Circuit and yeah, Utah, yeah, yeah. so you, you could probably wait. I, 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 that's a really good call on their part, yeah. frankly. Yeah. So, you know, I want to talk about sort of what the case law looked like that they were relying on pre-Carpenter coming down. Um, and, you know, perhaps ways that, you know, the Oregon court, the Oregon District Court applied it correctly and how Utah might not in particular. Well, yeah, I mean, let's just start with the basics of the third-party doctrine. I explained it very simply and sort of maybe even adopted the DA's view when I explained it, but it's the third-party doctrine isn't an absolute rule. I mean, you have to have their elements that are supposed to be evaluated. Yeah. And one of the really important things is how private is the information? Mm -hmm. If you look at the litany of Supreme Court cases that have ever been decided, um, there's not a there's only a few that involve health data at all. But a lot of ones that don't, GPS cases, etc. The judges, when they really want to go for the juggler, talk about health data. Yeah, or they talk about what's more private than going to the doctor or the AIDS clinic. You know, yeah. what's more private than that? So this is this notion that you brought up right from the beginning that we have that there's health data exceptionalism almost, right? Mm -hmm. That that's very very private would meet the test, would yeah. meet the And the other thing is voluntariness. Mm -hmm. You like the whole notion of like us with the trash, you 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 hit it. You pick that trash up and put it outside. Yeah. Whether you like that rule or not, you had agency. Mm -hmm. There is no notion of voluntariness here. So my argument was like read at reading the third party doctrine cases, this fails yeah. to fall within that anyway. It's super, super personal protected information. And we don't have the consent slash voluntariness factor met. And all the third party doctor cases, there's only three of them. Yeah. But they all they all reiterate that language. Okay. Okay. So how do things change with the Carpenter decision? Or let me backtrack. Just tell us a little bit about the Carpenter decision in the first place. Sure. So Car Timothy Carpenter um, was a guy who was suspected of being involved in, get this, it's a series of robberies mm -hmm. of Radio Shack retail stores and things like this. And who robbed a Radio Shack? That's, I didn't know there was still Radio Shack in Michigan. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so there was a surprise. I know. It's apparently like this very involved situation where there was getaway drivers and there was low level people involved and whatever. He was, he, they, you know, they started to investigate this. One of the guys they were investigating gave up all these other guys' cell phone numbers. Yes. They had, the cops had Timothy Carpenter's cell number and they wanted to go to his wireless carriers and get his See what we call CSLI data, which is your, that's the data that's pinging your phone all the time. And you have your location services mm -hmm. on your phone that triangulates you and gives us a good idea where you're at. Okay. And that data is really, really specific. If you're in a city, mm -hmm. you can like usually get with New York here. We could go within a city block. If we were in rural Utah, yeah. I might only be able to tell you what county we're in. Yeah. Um, but so that data can be very, very revealing or less revealing depending on where you're located. Okay. Okay. So what exactly was the conflict with this sort of information then? Like accessing this sort of pinging, triangulating location services data. Well, this, yeah, the, so the Secure uh, Communications Act, which is what, you know, they used here, also has this lower requirement, this, this administrative warrant requirement. So 
the FBI and uh, prosecutors did not need to get a Fourth mm-hmm. Amendment warrant under that statute. So you can now start to see where that's paralleling exactly some, some of the things that we've been talking about. Um, and Carpenter's argument was, no, you should have had to get a warrant under the exactly. Fourth Amendment. That statute's unconstitutional to the extent it conflicts with the Fourth Amendment. And the court really struggled with this. Uh, you know, this, this it's five word decision, very split the sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but John Roberts wrote the majority opinion, and what he decided was. The third look, the third the, the, the third party doctrine is exactly what I just described to you. It has these other requirements. Yeah. We have to look at voluntariness, we have to look at the nature of the information involved. And he sort of added a third layer, mm-hmm. which is like um, technology evolving, as we just exactly. talked about, right? Exactly. So these are now the three elements. And when I when Carpenter came out and I knew about these PDMP cases, I thought I, I really believe you're right that the Oregon decision was right and Utah was uh, wrong in the first instance, but now I'm like now it's even more clear. It's much more of a robust protection now. Right. Now it just seems like, because you have to think about this. This is how I thought about it. Carpenter's data that we were concerned about, okay, was a lot of data that yeah. put him at a really specific location, but it was about his movements in the open public. Mm-hmm. And you could argue that Carpenter, whose actions were much more voluntary. Than, exactly. Right? Because you can turn, you know what? I turn the location, I can turn my cell phone off so my mom doesn't know where I'm at. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, or I could just decide not to be walking around in public or something like that. Exactly. Know, like, okay, I'm just going to lay low for a bit. Right. So public movements, and he had the ability to turn that stuff off on his phone, mm-hmm. right? And the court still gives this to him. Yeah. Now I'm saying private, confidentially covered conversations with your doctor and prescribing information, yeah. and you don't even know the third party is collecting. Exactly. Data. So that's why I decided to write this piece saying I was so upset about these PDMP cases. I think this was all wrongly decided. But now for sure, yeah. there's no way the DA can continue to do these sweeps behind your back without a warrant. Okay. So any pitfalls that you can see coming down the chute, though, when we're talking about this? I think it's really important to address those. And how do you handle those? Yeah, there's several. As you know better than I do, Fourth Amendment doctrine is incredibly complicated in these factors. So one of the things that I'm really concerned about um, is that the CSLI data and cell phones have been treated very specially by the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. The courts have really been protective of the phone. Yes. And they talked about the cell phone as like, you can't, you, know, you can't go through life without it. You can't participate in modern society. It's an appendage. Mm-hmm. They tre- so they've, they've treated the phones and data on phones so specially. And I assume that that's because they probably all have these cell phones, right? That's so exactly they, they right. can understand what this is like. Right. They can imagine someone taking their phone, right, and all their banking information and their, on their schedule. Their, uh, you know, they say, right, in the opinion, they'll, they'd be able to see that I was going to the HIV clinic or yeah. they'd be able to see that I was going to get an abortion or they'd mm-hmm. be able to – they're very concerned because they have so much personal data on these. Phones. Absolutely. So the question there then becomes on the technology element that Roberts add, do I have enough just because this information is being stored in a database? Yeah. So that's a problem. But I, as I talk about the paper a little bit and I'm going to write a follow up paper about this, these databases have been infused with software and machine learning mm-hmm. that where we're running algorithms to give people scores about how, yeah. Are they going to be abused? We don't know what this black box algorithm is. Now you go in there, you're getting prescribed, and the doctor looks and is there a red flag by Maybell's name now? Mm-hmm. How come? Is it because you saw three different doctors this yeah. month? We don't know exactly. We have some idea about what they're tracking, but we don't. Like some people have said, if you're a woman, you get a higher score. Folks have said, like, if you have childhood trauma and you've been honest with your doctor about it, because ACE factors, you know, yeah. are, are correlated with some other issues. Um, so now somebody who has trauma is going to get red flagged when exactly. they get for treatment. 
So the, if you think about the, how sophisticated these databases are, how much information they're collecting, and really to my earlier point, so much more private information than your personal movement or your, your, your movements in public, um, I still think Carpenter's a strong case. But, but I am concerned that the cell phone has been treated so uniquely, and we're not talking about cell phones. Any issues potentially with the highly regulated industry sort of um, exception? Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to argue that um, <laughs> anything related to pharmaceutical medical treatment is not highly regulated. Yeah. Um, although the courts never held that specifically, mm-hmm. there have only been a few cases on this. So I am a bit concerned um, about that carve out too. But as I explained in the paper, I don't, the way the courts actually applied it is not literally what the uh, doctrine says. And I, I don't believe that that'll, that'll, ultimately, I hope that the court does not extend that to, to this situation. Okay, great. Is there anything else that you kind of just want to leave with us to consider when we're thinking about these issues in future? Um, you know, just for our sort of general knowledge, the general listener. Yeah, I think that it's important for the general listener to know that how much health data is being collected, period. Above and beyond these PDMPs, which most people don't know about, you're wearing you're wearing watch watches, you have your phone. I mean, a ton of personal data yeah. is being collected on you. Um, you put your face, Google Photos, you take a picture and you think you're just uploading a, a photo of your aunt. And they're making face templates and using your biometric data. Um, I write a lot about this, and mm-hmm. I just think that it's very, very important for people to realize how much really highly sensitive personal health-related data the government is collecting um, um, without your knowledge. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, these sorts of databases when it comes to even, like, you know, what's being prescribed to you and everything and any sort of, like, easy access to the DA or other law enforcement has to it. Like, if you know about that, that even disincentivizes you from maybe perhaps being honest with your healthcare provider. Or we talk about ACE scores right. and stuff like that. It's like, I hear that now. It's like, okay, maybe I don't want to be as forthcoming with this information. I think it, it's problematic, not just because it exacerbates the opioid sort of overdose crisis, but it makes it really hard to get the care you need, I think, just period. Yeah, and the more stigmatizing a condition has, the more likely you are not to seek treatment at all, right? Because, first of all, that's difficult in the first instance for yeah. people, but now we have people, you know, folks abandoning preventative care, which costs all of us more money and all these sorts of things. So it's, it's just led to a, a lot of negative outcomes, from at least from a public health perspective. Great. Well, I'm really excited to see um, the final version of this coming out in Duke shortly. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You're strutting casually down the street when a man comes up to you looking beat with telltale traces of hippie on his chin. You say howdy and he says hi, got anything that'll make me fly and if you do I surely wish you'd let me in on what you're dealing brother. In your mind you start to ponder what to turn this fellow on to and then you get a look into his eyes. You find his beard is only makeup and his liners and all and you realize that he's your friendly neighborhood narco agent, friendly neighborhood narco man, courtesy of your local FBI. Your friendly neighborhood narco daddy, all American thinking Fetty, there to trip you up while you are high. You're sitting in the coffee house with.
with the old narco agent friend, the old narco man, courtesy of your local FBI. Your friendly neighborhood narco daddy, all-American thinking Betty, there to trip you up while you are high. Now you duck into an alleyway thinking, hey, maybe I can cop a J and get back before the boss finds out I'm gone. Remembering the golden rule, you look both ways, make sure it's cool, and when there ain't a soul for miles around, you clutch your baggie full of weed and careful not to spill a seed, you roll a joint as big as Baltimore. And as you take that first big drag in a helicopter, drops a paddy wagon, and guess who's standing smiling by the door? It's your friend, the neighborhood narco agent, friend, the neighborhood narco man, courtesy of your local CIA. Keeping law and order bright and gay. Yes, you find out that the freak you trusted is the fink that got you busted. And 20 years is a long time.